Hello and welcome to the Mind Over Matter podcast, and I'm your host, Luke McLean. This is a show where I'll be interviewing experts on all things mental health and well-being, such as mindfulness, resilience, gratitude, taking back the power of your mind, acceptance, and letting go. Powerful and interesting topics that are designed to be able to get you out of autopilot and get you to living a healthier, happier life. Hey there, I'm Luke McLean and this is episode one of the Mind Over Matter podcast. Do you ever ask yourself, what makes me happy? Well, this episode is for you. My next guest is Tim Bono. Tim is a professor at Washington University in St. Louis. Over the last decade, thousands of students have taken his popular courses on the science of happiness. He recently released a book that summarizes major ideas from that field entitled Happiness 101, Simple Secrets to Smart Living and Wellbeing. The alternative name for this book is When Likes Aren't Enough. So let's welcome Tim to the show. But first, let's thank our sponsors. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? For me personally, I battled a gambling addiction, depression and anxiety for many years, always trying to fix things myself and not let anyone help me, which resulted in more pain and the cycle just continuously repeating itself. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 24 hours and it's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. The service is available for clients worldwide and you can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy, which is a great way to keep up with therapy while this coronavirus pandemic is around. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they can make it easy and free to change counsellors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counselling and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit betterhelp.com slash mindovermatter. That's better, H-E-L-P. And join the over 700,000 people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Special offer for Mind Over Matter listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com forward slash mindovermatter. So welcome, Tim, and thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thanks. Um, it's my pleasure to be speaking with you today. Now, we're going to get into to quite a few topics, which um, are definitely a massive interest of mine. But I guess before we do that, I think a, a quote can be, uh, well, can sum up someone. And I wanted to see if you had any favorite quotes that you, you really like and or anything that you that stands out. Uh, yeah, you know, there are a lot of quotes that I really like. One that I try to remind myself of daily um, is by Henry Matisse, who once said, there are always flowers for those who want to see them. And I like that quote, because I think that one of the most important things we can do in our daily lives is practice gratitude, because we know that there's a lot of stuff that can direct our attention to negative things, or that can be a source of anxiety, or distress. And certainly, we should give attention to those things. But it's also important to give attention to some of the positive things that are there that we might have lost sight of because it's so easy to get taken away by some of the more negative things. So I think that I, I like that quote because it's a reminder that there usually are flowers and other good things 
in the environment. And it's worthwhile to take time to relish those and savor those. Very well said, and I completely agree. And someone that um, you know, I can completely understand when you, the negative thinking um, just overtakes your mind, and it's very easy to to walk past things that are quite naturally beautiful or, or things that you have in your life. So, um, what, just on that topic, while we're on it, on gratitude, what would be what would be a way that someone can either practice or increase gratitude in their life? There are countless ways I think that we could. Do that. There are many formal ways that people do that. Some keep a formal gratitude journal where every night they have a notebook and they make entries of three to five things that they're grateful for. Or once a month, they will think to write a formal note of gratitude to a coach or a mentor or someone from their past who has impacted them in some way. But the great thing about gratitude is that it can really take any number of informal practices or forms. Um, there are some people who just every time they come to a stoplight when they're driving somewhere, they'll take a moment to think of one good thing that happened that day. And it, it could be something really big or it could be something really small. Like I had a really good breakfast this morning or I'm excited that this weekend I'm going to have dinner with a friend of mine. Um, so whether it's a formal practice or something that's more informal, um, I think that doing anything that is right for you and that you can easily fit into your own schedule is a great way to start. Yeah, brilliant. And I think maybe if you're, as we were touching on before we started, maybe if you're living in St. Louis, you're you're uh, you're grateful that the the warmer weather is coming back. <laughs> That's for sure. We have had a cold spell. It's been a, a brutal winter, especially the last couple of days. But the good news is that it looks like our, our weather forecast is starting to turn a corner, and we should have more normal temperatures in the week ahead. So that's certainly something to look forward to as we make it through these last cold, blustery days. Good to hear. Now, I guess speaking about your speciality, you you created a course on positive psychology and it became very, very quickly one of Washington University's most in-demand classes. Your students were burned out from stress, binging on social media, measuring their self-worth in likes and retweets, which a lot of the world are doing and they were desperate for true happiness. Now, happiness is something that I think is very, very broad but how can we increase happiness if we are unhappy? Yeah, it's a really important question because I think it's something that is a human universal. Everybody wants to increase their happiness, but uh, not, not everybody is entirely sure how to do that. And it makes sense because happiness can mean different things to different people. But I think that one of the most valuable things we can do when we're thinking about increasing our own happiness is really taking a moment to consider how we are phrasing the question of our happiness. Because a lot of people will say things like, I just want to be happy. Or they'll ask questions like, what job do I need to have in order to be happy? Or how much money do I need to earn to be happy? Or what city should I live in to be happy? And those questions treat happiness as if it is a binary, a yes or a no, a one or a zero. It sort of implies that it's an all or nothing, that either you're going to be happy or you're going to be unhappy. And I think that if we can reframe the question from how can I be happy instead to how can I be happier, mm. that I think makes a big difference in the approach that we take toward increasing our happiness. Because the first approach says either I'm going to be happy or I'm going to be unhappy. And the second approach, happier, acknowledges that happiness is on a continuum and that there's always going to be something out there or some set of circumstances that prevent us from being as happy as we want to be or as happy as we could be. But there usually are 
things that are within our own control that we can do to become happier. And that's what positive psychology as an academic discipline has been all about, trying to understand what are some of the simple behaviors and mindsets that we can incorporate into our lives to become just a little bit happier. And the good news is that there's a whole host of findings of really interesting research-backed practices um, that are pretty simple to incorporate into our lives that have good support to suggest that they truly can make us happier, even a little day to day. Brilliant. I, now I'm going to put you really on the spot then. So Go for it. I'm, I'm assuming these courses take quite a long time, but we've only got 30 minutes on this show. So how can you teach or how can you um, help the listeners create a little bit more happiness in their life and become that little bit happier? What are some simple things that they could look for or, or look to start doing? Absolutely. Yeah. Because I, I knew that we didn't have a full 15 weeks to go into this. So <laughs> if, if I had to give sort of my elevator pitch, um, you know, a few of the simple things we can do. Number one, we talked about the, the importance of gratitude, but it's worth stating again, because the effects are so strong. Just taking a couple minutes a week to dedicate some time to say, I'm going to focus on some of the good things in my life or good things that I have to look forward to. That has shown to increase well-being, optimism, even our physical health improves when we practice gratitude. Another very simple strategy that we can do is to find opportunities for pro-social behavior. If we can find something in our, in our community, some organization or community service event that we really care about that aligns with our interests and our values and dedicate some time each week or even just a couple hours each month toward investing in our communities in whatever way we can, that goes a long way because What's foundational to a sense of psychological health is a feeling that we are connected to something bigger than ourselves. And pro-social behavior, getting involved in the community, is a really effective way to do that. And also, another reason why pro-social behavior is so important is because arguably the single strongest predictor of our happiness as individuals has to do with the strength of our connections to other people. Having other people who are there to celebrate the good times with and other people who are there to be a shoulder to lean on when things are not going as well. And pro-social behavior, getting involved in our communities is a really effective way to build those social connections with other people. And probably if I only had one more that I would add to that. So we talked about gratitude. We talked about, about pro-social behavior. The other one that's really effective is how we take care of our physical health. In fact, really at the foundation of our psychological health is our physical health. So incorporating opportunities for physical activity through exercise on a regular basis, making sure that we're getting a good um, amount of sleep on a regular basis. And again, it's not to say that you have to go run a marathon tomorrow or you have to get eight hours every single night if your schedule doesn't permit that. But if you can get a little bit more exercise, if you can park your car a little farther away to get additional steps each day or go through for a walk through the neighborhood after work or get an additional 30 minutes of sleep each night. Those are the small behaviors, the small adjustments that, that over time can truly make us happier in the, the long run. So gratitude, pro-social behavior, taking care of our physical health, those are a good place to start. There's a huge amount of research behind all three of those um, to, as, as simple ways to increase our happiness. Brilliant. And I just want to touch on one of those. And the connection part and relationships. And I think it's it's something that obviously plays a massive factor in our happiness, whether we feel connected or whether we don't, as you just said. Like, 
It's one of those things, though, that a lot of people that, that struggle with, with their mental health or that have mental health issues, a lot of the time they do feel alone. Is it, is it something that, um, that, that they've disconnected from people? Is it something within the mind? It might be getting into something that um, isn't necessarily a focus. But I guess the question is, for anyone who struggles with relationships, now whether that is a, an intimate relationship or a friendship, family, whatever it may be, for anyone that struggles with relationships, what's a way that they can start to connect more or, or start to feel um, or start to improve relationships? Yeah, it's a really important question because you're exactly right that it can sort of turn into a vicious cycle that sometimes when people are feeling down, they're less motivated to reach out to others. And then because they're less likely to reach out to others, they feel more isolated, which only adds fuel to the fire of their distress or their despair. So I think that that one thing that an individual might do, and there are different approaches, there's no perfect way to do this, but one is to see, are there things that you can do to improve your overall morale and well-being on an individual level. So can you perhaps start that gratitude practice or can you start getting more sleep at night or more physical activity or doing other things that make you feel better? Because one of the things we know is that when people are happier, they are in a better position to initiate and to foster close friendships with other people. So you might see if there are simple things you can do in your day-to-day life to sort of give you yourself a boost to your overall well-being, because that sense of well-being is going to attract people to you. People sort of are drawn to that energy and want to be in relationships with others who are like that. Um, And then the other thing that you might do in tandem with that is to see if there are events or things in the community that you can get involved with. Um, Again, it could be a community service project, or maybe if you enjoy sports, see if there's like a community kickball game or volleyball league that you could join, or if you're into the arts, see if there's a singing club or community theater, see if there's something that you naturally enjoy doing, because that is often the best way to form friendships with other people is to find and seek out those who have common interests. And um, often those events are structured in a way that you don't necessarily have to do a lot of the heavy lifting, so to speak. You're simply there participating in another event with a large group of people. Um, But it at very least brings you together, and then you can see if you connect with others um, and then try to build a friendship from there. So I'd say if you can start to build behaviors into your own personal life to increase your sense of well-being, and then at the same time go out and find activities in the community, um, that can those together can be a very effective way to help spiral out of any of the negativity or distress that you might be experiencing. Yeah, and I like to get pretty personal on this show and, and it obviously creates relatability because it's very easy for, for someone with your, um, with your knowledge and your um, background to be able to, to pass those ty- types of tips on. And I think where it gets really relatable is seeing the personal aspects. So I just wanted to ask, is there a, is there a time, well, what, what was the most unhappiest time in your life and, and what was triggering that? What was causing um, the, the real unhappiness in your life? Yeah, certainly, you know, and there have definitely been some high highs and some low lows throughout my life. But I think that what has been common among a lot of the most difficult times have been just periods in my life where I have felt isolated, or that I just otherwise have not really felt like my life was driven by a larger sense of purpose, or that I didn't really feel like I was necessarily in my element or in the right place. You know, I think back to when I started college at at, um, the university, um, and it, I really struggled the first couple of years to really try to figure out um, what 
what the correct major was going to be for me and make sure that I was academically um, prepared to be successful in the degree program. Um, I struggled to really find um, a, a social group, and that really took a hit to my overall mental health and well-being. Um, I, I feel like I also went through a period of that for a little while in my 20s. Um, again, you know, I graduated from college and I felt like I had a good education, but, um, you know, I really kind of struggled to find that social group and to find that sense of connection to other people. And it was a very isolating experience. And I, I think that I became very anxious and very worried about what the future was going to look like. And I think that in all cases, you know, my saving grace really was getting involved in the community and seeing what opportunities existed. There was, um, a men's chorus in St. Louis that I joined. And to this day, you know, many years later, many of my closest friends are people who I met in that organization or people who I met through individuals in that organization. Um, so I think that, um, you know, just it, it was ultimately in those experiences um, where I kind of felt like I hit rock bottom that it prompted me to reach out and do something. And often reaching out, making myself vulnerable um, proved very helpful for me. And I think that, you know, when I look back, I, I, it also forced me to develop a sense of resilience such that if I encounter other difficult times or, you know, if, if I'm struggling with something, I'm able to look back on that and say, okay, I've been through hard times. I've been, I've experienced sadness and anxiety before, and I found a way out of that. Um, and so it sort of gives me a hope that, that the distress or the anxiety that I might be experiencing nowadays is temporary. Um, and it, it's, and that, that understanding, I think, has minimized some of the, the difficulty that otherwise, I think, could compound and only make things worse. Mm. Now, I'm going to take a stab in the dark. You, I'm, I'm assuming that Americans uh, know that reference, right? Oh, yes, <laughs> so, of course. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, yeah. Kind of, you're not that different. I mean, you, no, yeah, no, yeah. you're not from we're, another we're, planet. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm going to take a stab in the dark. Now, as a, as a professor in uh, positive psychology, I'm assuming you're quite a logical person. Yeah, I'd like to think so. <laughs> when when things come into your head that you're you know that you're unhappy about, it might be a behaviour, or you, you're even starting to recognise that you're that you were isolated, or um, anything that we would essentially attach a negative um, connotation to. Does your mind start to then over process that at all? You know, it's it's a really interesting question. So it sounds like you, you're kind of asking. It sounds to me. Um, if I um, am able to sort of to, to rationalize with my feelings a little bit, and if I notice something that's happening, you know, allow the intellectual understanding or an overview of what the science would have to say to sort of process those emotions. Is that a fair way to represent your question? That would be a much better way to ask my <laughs> question, yes. <laughs> I had it correct because I was just talking with a friend of mine a couple of weeks ago about this. Because um, he's also a very cerebral, highly intellectual person. And we both were talking about how it's one thing to study something from an intellectual perspective, but it's very different to put it into practice in your own personal life. Um, so, you know, people might assume that if you, oh, if you study happiness, that means that you're happy all the time. And that's not true at all. In fact, the, the conclusion that this friend of mine and I drew is that um, emotions are completely uninfluenced by data which means that I might experience depression or anxiety just as much as anybody else. And even though I might be able, it might register or I might acknowledge what's happening as it's happening, the acknowledgement of that does nothing 
to make it go away necessarily. I do think that I have, in, in the course of my study, developed some coping mechanisms and some strategies that allow me to minimize the impact of those. But those are strategies that, that anybody could use and that anybody could find out about and put into practice. I don't think that having studied them extensively necessarily makes you an expert at them or, or makes them more effective or more efficient. You just sort of know, okay, this is an emotion. It's temporary. Um, so yeah, I trust that it's going to go away. But in the moment of distress, I'm, I'm quite confident that it is as rock bottom. It feels as bad. It's it, the, the vicious thinking cycles are taking over just as much as they would for anybody else. Um, but then it's using the coping mechanisms again that anybody could use um, to you know get back up on your feet. But yeah, when the windstorm of anxiety comes over, it's I think the same for anybody, and I, I am in no way immune to them just because I happen to study this stuff. Yeah, an important answer I think because there's a lot of people, uh, particularly in I guess the mental health space, that try and try and really help others because of their own personal experience, and that's that's something that. You know, I I started doing it because of my own experiences, and I really just wanted to be able to prevent other people from feeling the pain that I felt. But at the same time, once those things take over, it doesn't mean that yeah, it doesn't mean that I'm immune to it. It doesn't mean that I have all of the well, even if I've got all the answers, it doesn't mean that I can put it into practice. So I appreciate uh, the way that you summed that up. It was um, it was brilliant. Um, yeah, well. It- I think that that's important for, for people to understand that you, you never get to a point in your life where you sort of arrive or you have it figured out or you're happy all the time. You know, at best, you, you can draw on your previous experiences to say, oh, yeah, I've been here and so have others. And there is light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about social media. Social media yeah. is obviously absolutely massive now and across so many different platforms and, and more and more platforms are, are coming up. For anyone that's overusing social media, how do you, I mean, how do you even work out whether you're overusing it? And then what advice do you have for, for people that may be either overusing or, dare I say, addicted to social media? Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, whether someone is overusing it or not, ultimately that has to be a judgment call on the part of the individual. I think that it's important for us, um, number one, to just to take inventory of how much time we're spending on it because. Um, we might be surprised if we actually kept track of just how many times we go on and how much time we end up expending towards scrolling through other people's posts or pictures or things. Um, and the other thing to be mindful of is is the impact that has on us. Um, and again, to just bring awareness to how it's uh, impacting us or how it's affecting us or as we are going through, you know, to, to ask ourselves, okay, do we feel better or after we scroll through all these pictures, are we suddenly filled with anxiety or envy or suddenly we feel inadequate because we see uh, other people who just moved into a big house or bought a new car or uh, are on some fancy vacation that we don't have the means to do ourselves. Um, and we know that a lot of our best research is coming out to show that the heaviest users of social media do most commonly end up with those outcomes. They feel worse about themselves after they spend a long period of time on social media. Um, so I think that, you know, when you look at the research, it's, it's very evident that, that the most effective way for us to modify a behavior is simply to observe it. And so I think that, you know, we have intuition and it's worthwhile for us to think about, um, you know, are, are you pleased with how much time you're spending on social media? Um, I think that probably all of us will acknowledge that we probably all spend a little more time than we wish that we would. And so, you know, if your goal then is to minimize, especially if you've noticed that it's really taking a hit on you, or you've noticed every time you, you, you log on, 
that you feel inadequate or you feel envious of others, um, you, you might do what you can to set up some barriers. Part, part of what makes social media so addictive is it's so easy to access at seemingly all hours of the night and day. So, I mean, I can tell you a couple of the things that I've done. Um, and, and I, you know, I've shared these with others and I think that they've put them into practice and found them to be, to be effective too. There's two key things I've done. Number one is I have blocked all social media websites on my personal computer at work. Um, and so unless, so I, I have it on my phone. So if there is some alert, I, you know, I get emails in case ever I'm tagged in something. So I know if, if I'm out there on the internet. Um, but I have to then log on to my phone and I keep my phone a, a little bit of a distance. And so just by putting a couple of extra steps that I can't just, you know, in the middle of a report that I'm writing, immediately switch to a different screen on my monitor and go online, I spend a lot less time on on social media because it's, I, I have it as one of the blocked sites at work. Um, so that's been very effective. The other thing that I've done, and I'll admit I'm not perfect about this, but I don't put my, I don't keep my phone on my nightstand in my bedroom. Um, and that has, and I've noticed that, uh, by doing that, I spend less time on social media because I found that even after I got into bed, I would reach over to my phone and I'd be looking at email. And then next thing I know I'm scrolling through Facebook or something. Um, and same thing, I would wake up in the morning and the first thing I would do would be looking at, at, at Facebook. And it was just, it was wasting a lot of time. And so by not keeping the phone right next to me again, it's putting a barrier there that if there were for some reason, I can't even ma imagine what a good reason would be. But if I needed to, to check something, I would have to get up out of bed, take those extra steps to check the phone. And by putting those extra barriers in there, it is significantly reduced and minimized the likelihood that I do that. So if you find that you're spending too much time on social media, I think just putting little barriers, putting, you know, limits, there are apps that will limit how much time you can spend in that kind of thing. Um, those can be very effective at minimizing how frequently you're going on simply because it's harder to access it. Mm. And what about for, what about for parents of whether it's teens or, um, or kids that, that are probably using, whether it's their phone or social media, um, too much, because one thing that I tend to look at from, from afar is generally there's a lot of judgment coming from the parents that, oh, the kids are always on their phone or the iPad or, or whatever, or whatever they're on. But then the parents are kind of mirroring that by being on their phone or whatever themselves. So is there any advice you would give to parents to be able to, to help if their, their kids are highly active on social media or even too much on their phone? Yeah. You know, I think that that's, that's an important one. Um, and if, if possible, it's great to have those conversations even before the kid gets the phone. And, you know, in my in my positive psychology class, these are all college seniors. They're 22 years old. And one of the things I've started to do at the end of the year, I ask them if an adult ever sat them down and to have conversations with them about a whole host of behaviors that many times come up for the first time in, in during the adolescent or teenage years. So I ask them, did anybody talk to you about, you know, before you got a driver's license or a credit card? Or did anybody talk to you about sex, drugs or alcohol or other risky behaviors like that? And, you know, there's probably 10 or 12 different categories. And in all categories, the students say, yes, somebody sat me down and had a conversation about um, a credit card before I got one of those. Somebody, you know, I had to take a driver's education course before I could drive a car. On the way to college, we talked about sex, drugs, and alcohol. The one category that everybody says nobody talked to me about this was using a phone and joining social media. Because um, for a lot of the parents of college students, they didn't have a phone or they didn't have social media 
when they when they were in college because those things didn't exist back then. And so why would they have a conversation? The 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 potential risks don't seem as palpable as with some of those other uh, uh, those other categories. But our best research is coming out to show that that too much time on social media, especially for an adolescent during those formative years, can be hugely problematic. So I would say if you can have a conversation before the kid gets the phone about what do you expect to see on social media or what is it going to be like for you if you scroll through on a Friday night and you see that there's a party that you weren't invited to, what is that going to feel like and what are you going to do in that moment? Um, I'd also set some parameters around how much they can use the phone. You know, I think it's important to set times, you know, that we're not going to be on our phones at the dinner table or we're not going to be on our phones an hour before bed or whatever seems feasible for your family to to demonstrate that that, you know, your phone is not something that you should be attached to 24 seven. There are appropriate times to use it, but it's also important to not be on it all the time and to be engaging in other activities. And then for the parent to be leading by example and putting that into practice in their own lives, um, I think can be a very effective way just to open up a dialogue about it, to acknowledge, yeah, the temptation is going to be there, but we have to be wise consumers of this technology so that we aren't the next victims of the psychological toll um, that can be taken by not using it correctly. Yeah, absolutely. On on technology or and even on, I guess, smartphones, is there any is there any particular apps or technology that you would advise people to be able to use, um, whether it's for their for their health or or what, for whatever it may be. Is there any apps that you would recommend? Well, um, so the the one app that I like the most, which really is just a timer, but it's called Insight Timer, and it's a meditation app. It's one that we haven't talked about um, so far, but if um, in in the fifteen week course that, that I uh, teach. One of the topics that we cover is meditation. And the reason why meditation is so important for us is because, you know, it's ultimately about helping us to identify thoughts that might come into our minds that aren't good for us. Um, and it's not necessarily about clearing those thoughts, but it's just acknowledging, oh, here's a thought that's not good for me. So I'm, I'm going to choose to sort of let it run its course and then, and then keep going versus give it more attention than it needs and and sort of turn into a, an unhealthy thinking cycle. So the reason I like that app, Insight Timer, is that it's it just keeps track of how much you meditate. Um, and again, it's going back to this earlier idea we've talked about that that a very effective way to modify a behavior is to observe it. This one lets you keep track, and it, it will sort of keep score for you how many minutes over the month you've meditated, how many days in a row you were able to meditate. Um, there's um, a Buddhist monk in California in the United States um, who who leads these guided meditations that I really like. They're free to download, dhammatalks.org. Um, and so I usually will call up one of those evening talks. I'll set the insight timer. And I think that that's a very effective strategy to improve psychological health. Yeah, absolutely. And a big fan myself. So I can definitely vouch for that. And I'll put that in the show notes, um, the site that you've just mentioned as well, so people can uh, jump onto that. Now, you're also an author, and a lot of what we've spoken about uh, people can find in the book When Likes Aren't Enough. Um, yeah. I think we've kind of capped and recapped um, what will be in the book. Is there anything else that um, stands out in there that we haven't spoken about that people should be aware about? You know, I think that we hit a lot of the major ones. The book also goes into some research on time management and willpower because a lot of people will hear about the happiness strategies and they say, okay, yeah, I understand I'm supposed to be getting more sleep or more exercise or getting involved in the community, but how do I actually put that into practice? 
And a lot of our ability to, to do that has to do with how we align the behavior with a particular time of day and how we muster the willpower and the um, self-regulatory strength to actually put those into practice and maintain them so that we can get the benefits in the long term. And, you know, to kind of put it in a nutshell, um, a lot of um, our best research on, on willpower shows that it's kind of like a, a muscle and we have to make sure that we haven't made ourselves psychologically tired by doing other activities that then prevent us from having the psychological strength to get exercise or to spend time with friends or to make entries in a gratitude journal. Um, and so there are some very simple things we can do every day to make sure that we have our best energy and our best willpower to carry out those other behaviors. Yeah. So yeah, we'll, we'll obviously put that in the, the show notes so people can uh, find out where to get your book and everyone should do that. But I want to know as well, what what other books or what other authors have inspired you in the past and what one or two books would you recommend for listeners to, to be able to get? Yeah, there are a lot of them that are very good. Um, there's if, if you really enjoy the research in this area, there's a book called Psychological Wealth, and it's by a psychologist by the name of Ed Diener, who's a faculty member at the University of Illinois in the United States. And I think that he does a really good job providing an overview of what a lot of the research has shown. He's He's done cross-cultural research where he's gone to different countries all throughout the world. He's um, consulted with the Gallup organization. He's actually done a lot of research on their behalf. Um, and so I think that he's done a very interesting job, a very good job of synthesizing a lot of our best data. There's another book called Positivity by a neuroscientist named Barbara Fredrickson. Um, and I, I've always admired her research, and she has an interesting take um, on, on those ideas as well. Thank you for sharing that. Now, I'll, I guess the last question I want to ask you, which is maybe a little bit different, but sure. if you have, if you had the one hundred percent complete power to make any change in the world, what is it, and how would you do it? Wow, that's uh, that's a. I feel I, I'm feeling a lot of pressure here because that's, <laughs> that's, that's an important one. Um, so I, I can have any superpower to change anything about like about anything in the world. Anything you like, Tim. Anything. Gosh, um, you know, it'd, it'd be a far cry, but I think that world peace would sure be great. You know, um, if, if we all just learned how to how to get along and how to be nice with it, nice to each other, I think if 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 I could sort of wave a magic wand and just make the, that everybody lived with kindness, um, regardless of any aspect of your politics or religion or identity, if we could all just be kind to each other. I think that we'd have world peace and. Um, it would just be a, a much happier place to live, I think. Well said. And and on that note, I'm going to extend a massive hug from, from South Australia over to St. Louis. And, and thank you so much for taking the time, for sharing your knowledge, for sharing your truths, being real. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure to, to have you on the show. And I, I'm sure... Um, the listeners will will be getting a lot of um, a lot of insights and a lot of strategies that they can use. And um, yeah, definitely appreciate your time uh, for yeah for taking the time on the show. It's been my pleasure, and I hope that you can feel that hug being returned all the way from the United States. Feels good, Tim. Feels good. Thanks, mate. Sure thing. My pleasure. And as always, don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified when new episodes are released. And if you like what you hear, we would love for you to leave a review. And if you don't like what you hear, simple, don't leave one.
Tim, thanks so much for joining the Mind Over Matter podcast and sharing your experiences and insights. I truly appreciate it. Now, on the next episode, I interview an AFL footballer who at the age of 18 was charged with one count of aggravated robbery. Since then, he has gone on to play 84 games and has also been announced in North Melbourne's leadership group. On the next episode, we welcome Trent Dumont. We're going on to discuss how he managed mentally during those difficult times and why he's so passionate about mental health advocacy now. Thanks so much for listening to the Mind Over Matter podcast show. I'm so thankful for all of our listeners. We want to keep producing content you want to hear, so we would love to hear your feedback. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook for all of our latest updates. Stay safe, stay healthy, and much love from me to you. Catch you next time.